welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. Hey, Bethany. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. How are you? What's, what have been going on with you? I, I'm good just doing lots of... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finalize some of my books. So it's just me running around mostly forgetting things and trying to get them done. Um, and then being really frustrated because I thought I knew how this worked by now, but apparently I'm still forgetting the same things over and over. But hey, at least I'm making progress on my work. How about it's you? It's called checklists. I adore checklists. I will not remember anything without them. But I have checklists, but apparently I keep forgetting to add certain things to the checklist. And then I do add them. And then it turns out, oh, there was this other thing that's that's also needed. And so basically I, I'm my checklists checklists aren't even close to being done yet well they can be edited i and i do edit them. <laughs> we're writers and editors we yes. can edit checklists no but i edit them like all the time and then i'm like i like i'm still missing things right there's just so much um there's so much that's that that goes into like from having this idea to getting it out there that uh, even though like I've just published my 20th title and I'm still like still forgetting certain things so yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm working hard getting getting a little frustrated with myself trying to be kind to myself uh, trying to edit my checklist yeah good for you how about you I am I'm working with a friend to help them get their book of short story collections out. And hopefully when he gives me permission, I'll be able to share the title with everyone when it's ready to come out. Cool. Yeah, no, I uh, I was his developmental editor and then he decided to go indie. And um, so I've been coaching him on that. That's cool. That's yeah. awesome. You don't know what you learned and forgot until you try to teach it to someone else. Yes. Like, We've yeah. been writing so long that there are things that I don't even think to tell somebody. And then publishing, you don't even think, you think, okay, everyone knows this. And then you get something, you're like, you didn't do this. And they're like, you never told me. And I'm like, of course, I, I, yeah, I didn't even think. You have no. to teach to know what you know. <laughs> but I have that, like, when I edit somebody's work, like, I, I never just make changes. Like, I, I, I'll use track changes but I always try to explain why I made this change. Exactly. And that has been really useful for me as well, because then you're like, how, how do I explain in like layman's terms, right? Like, how do I, like, why, why is this needed? Like, and where did I pick this up? Like, like who told me this? Um, and, and what's the rule again? Right. Um, but yeah, it's super useful going through that process. And it's beautiful, I think, like being allowed to witness that kind of process. It is. It's really, it's really special. But talking about process, this is episode six. It is. Um, what do we want to do with episode six? 
Um, well, I know what we're going to talk about, but I was wondering, because it's episode six, do we want to do like a little recap of the previous five episodes, just so everyone knows where we are at, like in our podcast journey? Well, we're like a month and a half in. So yeah, we probably should do a recap. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you want to start? Okay, sure. Um, let me see. So in our introduction episode, we first talked about why this is a conversation that we need to be having, this diversity and writing conversation. And then um, then we, episode two, I'm kind of blanking on what we did, but I think we continue talking about that and introducing some of the topics. And then in yeah. episode three, we discussed some of the common fears and frustrations that we might have around writing diverse characters which for me was a really significant episode. Yeah, for me as well. And and we continued that conversation in episode four, where we dove into the topic of cultural appropriation, which is another very common fear and frustration. Um, and then in episode five, so the previous episode, we explained how representation actually works. How does it work? Um, and that brings us to today's episode in which we will be talking about some of the common pitfalls around representing diverse characters in our writing. Uh, yes, and to be able to do that, we're going to devote at least two episodes to the topic. Am I right? Yes. Uh, in total, we will be discussing three topics, um, essentialism, tokenism, and something that we've decided to call affirmative myopia. So let's see how long we need for each of these topics. Yeah, let's see where we end up. Okay, anyway, so the reason we want to discuss these topics now and not as we dive into different uh, stereotypes and cliches later on is because we wanted to give you some tools you can start using like right away. Just knowing about these things will help you make better choices already without us honing in on uh, specific identity markers, which we'll be, we'll be doing in um, the next season. And probably seasons after that. And yes, yeah, 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 as we go on, yeah. yeah. So um, we'll be using this terminology throughout our research, which is why it's important to cover now, and the episodes that will follow. So let's see, let's, let's dig into it. Yes. Essentialism. <laughs> Are we gonna just stop there, just say the word, cause it's essential? What is it and why is it a bad thing? The look on your face <laughs> is telling me it's a, it's a bad thing. Yeah, no, but it's like, it's funny because it's like, it's an essential topic to talk about essentialism, right? Okay, so essentialism, um, what is it? Um, well, I have this definition. So this is one of the topics that I taught about um, when I was still um, in academic circles, when I was still teaching um, at Utrecht University. So we use this um, handbook for our post-colonial courses and they had this really good definition so I want to share that here the book is called post-colonial studies the key concepts and it's by Bill Ashcroft Garrett Griffiths and Helen Tiffin um, so I got the book when I was still a student and as a teacher I still use them so here's how they describe essentialism and uh, yes it is a bad thing um, so here it here's the quote Essentialism is the assumption that groups, categories, or classes of objects have one or several defining features exclusive to all members of that category. Some studies of race or gender, for instance, assume the presence of essential characteristics distinguishing one race from another or the feminine from the masculine." End of quote. So that's why it's called essentialism, because it assumes that there's a certain essence to groups or people or categories or classes of objects. Yeah. 
it's it's the belief, uh, and and many people hold this true still, that some human traits are um, biologically determined. You know, no matter how often it has been proven that most human traits, if not all, are actually culturally determined. Which means that they're not ingrained in our DNA. They're not. So, like, there's nothing in a woman's DNA that makes her a better caretaker than a man, right? And there's also nothing in a man's DNA that makes him better suited to put food on the table um, or otherwise, like, provide for his family, right? And I'm actually a little scared saying this out loud while we're recording because there are so many people who still believe this without question. Just say it, girl. Just say it. Um, but I, I guess we believe this because we're, we're told this over and over and it's demonstrated for us in many ways. So if this is, this is how we always did it. The women stayed at home and in their huts, into the caves, gathering berries, taking care of the offspring while men went out and hunt. That's what we're told. This is the way it's always been. Yes. And this but... is the story. Yeah. This is the, but like, this is a story that we're still being told. And the, the, the but is that this is not even a true story. Right, no, like the, the story that we've weaved around our hunters and gatherer ancestors, it's false. Uh, and now I really feel like I need to run for cover um, because I'm gonna hurt so many people's beliefs by just saying this. Um, but by now we know that hunting wasn't exclusive to men, right? They found plenty of proof that women hunted as well. And we also now know that most of the food they had on a daily basis wasn't meat. It was the stuff that the women gathered. Yes, occasionally the men who were fit to hunt and, you know, including the women who were fit to hunt, they added some meat to the diet, you know, but only when there was something to hunt. So it depended on the seasons and where they were. Um, and when the men weren't hunting, they were gathering food with their women folk. They weren't just lazing about waiting for some bison or whatever they hunted to show up right so the story itself is false like and we know that by now it's it like it's it's been proven that this is not it is a story that's it it's it's not a it's a story actual. with political with a, a political agenda but if i start on that oh. we won't get off this recording for hours um, so in that same vein, um, just as an example, I'm going to say that we can also say that there's nothing in a gay man's DNA that makes him effeminate or flamboyant either. And I'm thinking of all my LGBT friends that are like going to start screaming. So, yeah. Yeah, but like you're right, like there's no one like. No one's saying, right, that this type of gay man doesn't exist, right? Yes. There are effeminate and flamboyant gay men. Nobody's saying that they aren't right. But there are so many more examples, and I know these from fiction, and I know this from real life. Um, and I mean, on top of that, I also used to work at a gay bar, and that's like where you see them all, right? Um, so I know that this, there are so many types of gay men, and only one type is the effeminate or the flamboyant uh, gay type. And I, I, I can't help but think it's almost as if the exception in real life is often the rule in many fictional worlds. Well, if that makes sense. Yes, there there are certain things that become uh, idealized in fiction because it's fun to read or write about, according to some people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I would go on to give another example, just because you're Asian 
or have Asian heritage doesn't automatically make you have an higher IQ or super good at math. I taught in Asia. I can tell you this for sure. <laughs> yes. And, and likewise, when we talk about uh, Asia, Asian women are not obedient by nature. There is something that is just part of Western culture that we think that women from the so-called Orient are, are uh, um, obedient by nature. Oh my uh, gosh, but- there was a, a mob of grandmothers, like all these women were over 50 by a lot, that went after the mayor right next to where I was living in Guangzhou with a butcher knives because he was telling them to turn their music off at night. They they were so not going to be listening to him. <laughs> so I guess we can say there was nothing in their DNA either that turned them into like sort of obedient self-sacrificing housewives. Well, oh, they were badasses. They were badasses. It's, it's almost like this is all nurture and not nature. To, to some extent, or or the, the forces at play to force you to become something that other people yeah. want you to be, or you yeah. think is going to be desirable or helpful for you to be. But yeah, that is a whole nother topic. I'll just throw out one more example. Um, Black people aren't genetically inclined to always be lazy. Yes, and, and neither are they exceptionally prone to violent or hypersexual behavior just because they're Black. It's that's not in the DNA. Not, that's not a thing. No. So now that we got that off our chest, and I know we're both shutting ourselves up because we need to move on. Um, I can I can talk about this forever. No, we're moving on. <laughs> yeah, yes. We got to talk about writing. Yes. Um, but let's let's dissect what makes essential essentialism problematic in particular. Because, I mean, I mean the examples that we've just shared, right? That's like it's clearly a problem. Like if this is just the way you write these people, that's problematic. But why it's why essentialism in and of itself is problematic is because um, if we believe that people are determined by their biological makeup, what we're saying basically is that the world function, the way the world functions and our positions and situations within that world, they can't really be changed because they're based on nature and not on nurture. So that means that if existing power relations are in place because there is some inherent logic in our DNA that defines our roles and our places within society, how do you go about challenging the status quo if it's natural? I mean, yeah. Um, So this is really about how we see ourselves, other people in society, what we think is possible. Yes, and and how the many stories and beliefs about what behavior is natural, uh, what what these what these come from, right? And and these stories they, they originated a long time ago, and they, to a certain extent, they keep us stuck in our places, right? Not entirely, as we've proven, um, but to a certain extent, it makes it makes it really hard to unstuck yourself if everybody thinks that where you are is where you should be right Mm -hmm. um and and that's great right if you're the norm and you're in power that's great but if you're not the norm you're not in power that's not so great if everybody thinks and even yourself thinks that this is just the way things are i mean um to go very scientific um i'm sure you've heard about phrenology like the science of measuring skulls oh yeah i it was startling to hear i heard about it as a like a 12 or 13 year old, um, 
I know it's been used to classify Black people as not really people because their skulls look different from a typical white person's skull, which is false because the guy who was teaching about it, actually, he's like, here's my skull and here's the skull they used. And I'm a white man and I look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, I, I've heard something, I think I heard it from you. That's why the Irish have long been considered Black because their skulls look more like that of a Black person. Yeah, which is really funny considering the skin tone of the Irish. Um, but yeah, like um, in the US, the, the Irish have, have long been considered Black. And there's even a book, uh, not about the Irish, but about Jews, uh, called How Jews Became White Folk. Mm. Right? So that's the same kind of idea. Like it's, it's, it's how we did science back then. Um, but I think the problem is, is that we're still um using this these kind of pseudoscientific practices or we still maybe we're not using them then but the stories that they told us they are still in our um in our society they st- they still play a role um uh, yeah i think a lot of it for a lot of people it has changed but it lingers and, and we have to yes. be aware of where it's lingering where we don't even realize we're still holding on to a story like even when you're trying to be really aware it can hang on so yeah. I don't think most of us almost, I'm not going to say nobody because there's people who believe the earth is flat, but most of us do not believe in phrenology anymore. But some no. of those ideas are sticking around. Yeah, so not necessarily the, sci- the, the pseudo-scientific practice. That's not something we necessarily believe still. But the things, the stories that were told because of these practices, the stories that went out there, I think those are still partly uh at least partly ingrained within our psyches right like our collective unconsciousness and definitely in our literature historically yeah because we read yeah. that's what's written a long time ago so um so i'm just gonna throw another example of how this is still hanging around um it's why it took so long for white women in the west to get the vote because yes the, our, our different anatomy uh, anatomies Mm-hmm. I can't say that word very well. We're believed to make us <laughs> unfit to make rational decisions. I actually yeah. grew up in a society that still believed this. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm long gone. <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, we have wounds. So we're prone to hysterical fits or something like that, which is definitely not true. Yeah, which is like very Freudian, right? Like um, women are very sensitive because we have wounds and our wounds run around in our bodies making us hysterical but even though we now laugh about that the the idea that the womb somehow travels through the body making us go crazy there are it it, look at our look at the people in power there are still so few people in power and of the people in power the women in power only so few are allowed to actually be any kind of feminine it's almost as if you have to prove that you're not hysterical before you can be in power, because apparently we still think women, you know, don't have what it takes yeah. to be like, you know, to 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 deal with real power, like uh, be in politics, for example. It's it's the, the world is too hard out there for women, right? So we still, you know, even though we can laugh, this is the thing, right? Like these days, we know much better than to take these so-called scientific practices too seriously. Even like what the things that Freud said, right? Um, we can sort of laugh about it 
and like or just like how 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 did people think that this was okay to how how did people believe this or, or how did they think it was okay to use this particular method to say something like this like to for example um, explain away why slavery was okay right by measuring somebody's skull stuff like that right like saying you're not human because of this right now we can I wouldn't laugh at that but at least we can be like I can I'm so glad we move beyond that right yeah. stories have a purpose yeah stories always have a purpose you're taking me back to the political propaganda I studied in school and these these stories really get ingrained in our psyches don't they our yeah. collective unconsciousness as we've said before which is why they hang around so long and are so hard to know they're yes. there yeah so and this is um yeah, but th this is exactly the point I'm trying to make. It's like, because of that, you know, no matter how we now feel about these particular practices, it doesn't really mean that we have shed those beliefs, right? And like we mm -hmm. said before, like some of, some of them, uh, I would say a lot of them maybe, still linger. And, and there are still people who believe that Black people are lesser humans, right? And like I said, there's still people who think that women cannot make important decisions, you know, because their emotions will get in the way. So uh, these are centralized stereotypes, correct? Yes. And like I said, even though they're based on a science that we no longer consider real science, they are still running rampant, some of them, right? And we still have so many assumptions about the other, and I use quotation marks there, you know, those with different identity markers. And all of these are just floating around in our collective unconsciousness. And as long as we keep repeating them or don't provide another enough counter representation, proving them false or, you know, not every not everyone in this group is like this. Those stereotypes won't shift in our collective subconsciousness or mm -hmm. consciousness. Is this what you meant by when you said stuck earlier? Yeah, I did. Um, like as long as we believe that biology is destiny and we portray, portray our characters in such an essentialist way, we basically sentence them to a set of traits that they won't be able to overcome. Unless they transcend their nature? Yes. And, you know, that, that then causes a rupture, right? Because if they are not that, if they don't possess this or that quality, you know, or if they do, then who are they? Because apparently there's, they're going against something that's natural inside of them. This is something that we hear all the time. I, you may have heard this. You're pretty tech savvy for a woman. You look <laughs> normal for X, Y, and Z, whatever you are. Yeah. Or you're like really hardworking for a black guy or um, you don't look, I, I get you don't look like a lesbian a lot, for example. Um, but also um, I, I, I was recently in the Netherlands and I ran into an old colleague um, and he always got, you're pretty chill for a Muslim. Oh, that's infuriating. That's that. That's cute, right? Um, but then again, like you're pretty feisty for an Asian woman, like the the grandmothers you were talking about, right? Oh my gosh! Yeah, they would take that town down. Yeah, but those are the stereotypes. Yeah. So, um, just going back to my notes here to remember, although it depends on how ingrained a stereotype is, just. How many of these exceptions do you need before you start questioning this collective unconsciousness? How many times as a person do you need to see something that doesn't match before you go, oh, maybe it's not that? 
Well, I guess that's the tricky part, um, right? Um, and this is also why we think this conversation about representation is important because we do need so many counterexamples. We need to add to that big pile that's already out there, right? This is why we basically invite everyone to start writing more diverse characters because it's gonna take a lot of work to counter all those lingering assumptions that we have in our collective unconsciousness. Um, so I have so, this list here. List of, uh, list of what? I um, I was gonna say that I just see I in my notes I see one two three so I'm listing which Let's I do, do a it. lot so um, so what I was gonna say is like the thing is that stereotypes and other cliches right they can be based in reality right they 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 sometimes actually come from something right stereotypes uh, usually come from something it's just what's the story around what that something is and how was it used. Yes, and that is something that we have to be really careful about. But I was going to say that um, the problem arises around stereotypes and essentialized stereotypes is that it, you know, it diminishes an entire group of people to this one thing, right? And it uses this one trait to differentiate between this group and others, right? This is when it becomes a problem. Um, the problem also arises when we start assuming that a particular stereotype applies to every single human being belonging to that same community, right? So everybody, it has to go for everybody because of course it's part of their nature. So it has to go for everyone, which of course is never the case because there is diversity within diversity. And then the third point I have here is that we forget what these stereotypes are once based on. Like I said before, what we see is biologically determined is often based on something cultural right? It's nurture instead of nature. Um, they might be based on something, but that doesn't mean it's based on something that can never be changed. Besides, they might be based on pretty hor horrific beliefs and practices. Um, and knowing that, knowing where they came from, that might be enough for you to want to stay clear of repeating that stereotype altogether. Okay. So I'm getting a sense that once we stop treating a certain group with traits as essentialist, in our writing, we automatically allow for the inner diversity to come through within communities as well. Mm -hmm. Our characters can be African-American and hardworking. Um, most of the people I know that are African-American work very hard. Uh, they can be Asian and failing at math. I taught a student like that. They can be a woman and a breadwinner and a brilliant driver. They can be gay and have no sense of style at all or don't care. They can be Muslim and not believe in violence. Yes. What a crazy world that would be. Um, the world I live in, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it, right? But fictionally not. In, in fiction, we're not there yet. Um, some by the people way, are getting there. I feel the need to acknowledge that some course, people are getting of, there. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and I, I know we were talking about some of my favorite examples in this episode, maybe the next, depending on how far we get. But yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I know some perfect examples. But I do want to say this, right? This doesn't mean that we cannot have uh, Black people in our work who are a bit lazy, right? We can doesn't mean we cannot have angry Black women or violent Muslims or perfectly styled gay guys and butch lesbians, right? When we write. I'm not saying that. We are not saying that. But... Whenever we write a character, we should make sure we don't just give them these characteristics because they are gay, lesbian, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Muslim, young, old, poor, rich, and so on. 
Yeah. So if they behave or act in a way that seems to fit the known stereotypes, but it really serves the story, that can still work. Uh, We just need to give them a solid reason beyond the stereotype and explainable circumstances for why they are being this way or why they are this way, why they act this way. That isn't biology. Yeah. Um, we, we literally just need to do the basic building blocks of writing, which is give our characters a place they're coming from that makes sense. Um, the same goes for every character we write, really. Uh, I know you're not going to dig as far back into minor characters or incidental characters, but try to write with that in mind, that it has to be a reason where they're coming from. Um, They always need to make sense, the choices the characters make and their attributes, you know, align it with where they come from, where they grew up, who they met along the way, what their obstacles are, what the challenges they have to deal with are, what resources they have. Yeah, that, exactly that. And you said that that's basic writing. You know, we do that for all the characters that we, or we should be doing that for all the characters that we write. And we should be doing the same thing for the diverse characters that we write, because if people are lazy, that's for a reason, right? They might be depressed. Uh, So it might not be, I don't believe in laziness. So that's, uh, uh, um, I don't actually believe laziness exists. Yeah, so it's, there's, there's, there's things, right? There's, uh, there's, there's often a huge background there. Um, if a person is violent, right? Whether they're white, whether they're Mexican, whether they're black, there has to be a reason for that. Nobody is just violent just because they can't help themselves. I'm going to throw something out that is a little weird and off topic, but I would actually say if you do this enough, if you dig into every character enough and do these basic building blocks of putting a character together and giving them, you won't really end up with just a stereotype or just a mainstream character ever. No, I'll have to agree. That's not off topic. That's perfectly on topic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so so that for me, which uh, I don't know what, what time it is. I think we do have some time because that for uh, me is essentialism. And of course, we will have a checklist for everyone. Um, so you can check your work against essentialism. And of course, as always, we'll be sharing that in our show. The link we'll be sharing in our show notes, but you can also find it on our blog. And of course, if you have already signed up for our newsletter, I think it should be in your inbox by now. Um, if it's not, I know it you- will be shortly. And yeah. we've edited this checklist. <laughs> it's Yes. It's not like the checklist for Marielle we talked about. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's not my writing and publishing checklist, which is a, um, a work in progress. Uh, uh, this is not a work in progress anymore. Um, but so I'm looking at checklist. you. Yeah, but I'm looking at you for the time. Like, is there time to discuss maybe one of the other topics? How about affirmative myopia? And we'll leave the rest for the next episode. Yeah, because I have a lot more to say about tokenism than about affirmative myopia. So that's safe, I think. You're going to scare me. How, how much time do I have to set aside? Don't, don't answer this question. Let's talk about affirmative myopia. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is something you taught while you were still at university, right? But you didn't have a term for it. Yes. It's, it's something that I just noticed a lot around me and it wasn't in any of the books that I was teaching. Uh, and I saw it in politics. I also saw it in the cultural realm. And I just felt like, you know, I was teaching courses about representation and I cannot not discuss this practice. And, and go into it. What was the practice that you noticed? 
it's the practice of being exclusive or the practice of excluding while including. Um, so in my classes, I've been calling it different things like excluding inclusivity, exclusive inclusivity, and so on, because I was just looking for a term. And I still, I don't know if there is a term for this already out there, right? So if there is, and you listener, you know it, please let us know. And we'll be using that term from now on. But when we talked about this practice for the first time, I really liked the term that you came up with. Affirmative myopia. Yes. So yes. what is that for us? What does it mean to exclude while including? Break it down. Okay. Well, you know how sometimes we, we see that a better representation of one group, right? Sometimes we see that it comes at the expense of another group. So in, in trying to represent um, a certain minority in a respectful way, you know, a way that provides much more nuance and complexity, it sometimes happens at the expense of the representation of other groups. So when one person's representation, a better representation brings down another person's representation. Yes, and, and for me, this can mean two things. So me and my lists again. So one, in representing a minority in a better way, what happens is we create a negative representation of and or perpetuate harmful stereotypes about other groups. And I fully believe this can happen unconsciously. I'm not saying mm -hmm. we do always do this consciously, right? Yeah, and a lot of this second, is subconscious. Yeah, and then secondly, uh, what it can mean is that in giving a platform to one minority, we exclude others from it. So by giving the stage to a minority, we kick off other groups that also belong there. Okay, so can we speak of affirmative myopia only when minority groups are concerned or do you include representation of majority groups as well? I would, I would include uh, the representations of majority groups as well. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that people will disagree with me about that, but that's really just part of my worldview. I mean, I want you to explain what I also say I would agree because here as a white woman in that identity, I'm in the majority group, but when I've lived other places, other people had uh, the majority power and I definitely did not. So would you care to care to explain this more? Yes. Um, so let's add <laughs> my, my very utopian philosophy here. Um, how am I going to say this? Okay. When we purposefully try to elevate minority voices in our work, right? That's usually for a reason. We want to give the floor to characters who aren't represented in the best possible way thus far. I mean, that is if they're represented at all, right? Okay. I'm just, I'm just looking at you whether you're following me. Okay. I, I'm so, following, I'm following. Okay, Keep okay, going. good, good, good. Okay, so the majority has always decided who gets to speak and which representations are taken to be true, right, in history. And I don't think I'm saying anything shocking when I say that the majority has represented itself positively at the expense of the minority for ages, right? It, it, it's what enabled them to stay in power all this time, right? Like, if you as a majority decide, if this is your skull size, you're not really human, so you need to work for us for free in horrible circumstances, that's what enables you to stay in power. I would agree with you, except I would say at certain points in history, it would be the people with the most money, not necessarily the most numbers, but definitely majority oh, power. Oh, no. okay. Yes. So when I say majority, 
I hardly ever mean numbers because um, the majority, the ruling majority, right? What we call okay. the majority has hardly ever been the actual majority in numbers, but it, it were the people in power, the people with the money, right? Okay. So just, I just might use ruling majority to help myself remember that. Yes, but it's good that you said because for me that's such a, that's like it's like it, that's that's might be one of my blind spots. Or when I I think majority, I know it's because there's more women in the world, for example, than there are men, right? And then we really need to say ruling majority. Okay, I'll try. It, I'll try. It. That's just really that. Speaking of ingrained, that one's really ingrained. So if I say it again and I say it wrong, or I forget that bit. Uh, just let me know. No so, worries. okay. So, so my point is that by now, right, we're very sick and tired of this status quo, right? We, we part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is because we want to tackle this. Yeah. Okay. So, and this is where my utopian feminist ideology comes to the fore. What I believe is that if we, in our attempts to elevate those voices by representing them in better ways, if we, while doing that, fall into the affirmative myopia trap, for example, by negatively depicting those who've always been in power, what we're doing is we're perpetuating the same structures that created the status quo in the first place. We lift one group up by bringing another one down. So we're fighting fire with fire. We're basically using the same structure that we've deemed rotten. Yes. And... That might indeed be way too utopian for some people, but that's part of my philosophy. It's it's I'm, I'm I'm it's like Audre Lorde said, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. You'll still you just install a different master. Yes. So I've never, and I know there's so, so I I do have a a feminist philosophy background. There have been feminist thinkers who were fine with that idea. You know, just just top the system, like just 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 switch positions. But I've I've always been part of the the club that uh, was like, no, the system the system is 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 you know the system that's been created that's part of the problem. So you need a different system. So treat others the way you want to be treated. Do you have yes. an example of where just swapping out, you know, using the structure, fighting fire with fire? Do you have an example of that? Yes, uh, and uh, <laughs> again, I'm not sure it will do wonders for my popularity. Um, this is a Don't very. I think you're gonna honest, like sing on. <laughs> you're not singing on Eurovision. Go for it. Okay, I, mean, I just feel like this is a very. I'm being very honest. This. Oh, I'm always trying to be honest, but this is this. This runs deep for me. This episode. So, did you see Carol, 2015 lesbian film? No, I have not. Should I? It's it's it's. I mean. You know, before I antagonize anyone uh, even further, I did enjoy watching it when it came out. Like it was beautifully done. I love the actresses. Um, so yeah, it was like it. It was. It, it is a good film. I'm sensing a but here. Yes. So it is. It is a beautiful film. It is a good film. Um, but I really couldn't get over how most of the white middle-aged straight men were depicted in the film. Which is really funny saying that because I am a, a, a rabid feminist as well, right? Um, so I, I never read the book. Um, so I don't know how they are described in there. But the representation, they were depicted as such 
vile men, like close to insane almost, like almost pure villains, basically. That's how I read them. All of them? Not, not, not all of them, but the, there is this club of white middle-aged, um, a bit upper-classy straight men um, who are, um, they are against Carol. So this is, this is the people who Carol is up against. Okay. And you didn't agree really with how far this went or how it was done? I, I thought it was too much. Um, it was pushing that point so hard that these men were crazy and didn't have empathy and uh, um, um, were just mean because they wanted to be mean um, that it got on my nerves. Like, I'm not saying that these things that happened in the film didn't happen at the time. Right. Like awful things still happen. Right. It's 2021. Awful things still happen. Um, But it kind of felt like these men were purely perceived from our current day perception. So now we think it's ridiculous that people didn't understand homosexuality back then and how they behaved around it and how anti they were. Right. And. You know, that a lot of people truly thought it meant something was wrong with you mentally. That's the kind of that's that's what's what we see in the film. It took a long time for homosexuality to get pulled out of the DCM as a diagnosis. Yes, yes, right. Uh, and that also, like, I'm, I'm thinking in the Netherlands, I think it was 76, and I think we were quite early. Yeah, I think you were. Yeah, yes. So this film happens before, right? It was uh, 1952, right? That's, that's significantly earlier than that. Yes. So people actually did think something was wrong with you mentally when you were gay, right? Um, so for me, the problem was, is that the film was set in 1952 and there wasn't the slightest bit of understanding, redemption. Like for me, the story was very clear. These are just a bunch of awful, wicked men who wanted to make Carol's life just miserable without reason. And to me, that made them look rather one-dimensional, like as if they were not human at all. Um, like they were all, as these men, they, they were all delusional, right? They were the ones who were delusional. Um, and in a way that was refreshing, and I'm sure it's, it's it was very refreshing to some people watching this, uh, to see white straight uh, upper-classy men being portrayed like that for a change, right? Because, you know, we don't see that a lot. They're dragged down from that pedestal. But this particular presentation that didn't work for me, like personally, it, it like I said, it was, it was, um, just not I, I just storytelling? Kept, well, it's not, it's not, but it, and, and also because like it, it was bad storytelling because they became like sort of one dimensional villains. But for me, I kept thinking in the cinema, it's 1952. Everyone was thinking it was a th- it was a mental thing. So I would say if I was developmental editing a book like this, I'd say it's just bad villain writing. Um, again, I'm not going to judge too harshly because I haven't seen the film. Um, but villains always have to have their reasons. Yes. They they are the hero of their own story. They they believe in what they are doing. There are ways to show clash and the fear that the villain has and why they're doing what they're doing. Personally, I mean, it makes it so much, the story so much more real and significant for me when all of those pieces are in play. For example, my grandmother, she says a lot of racist things about people who frighten her. And I understand what drives her and while it's not, while I don't agree with what she says, and I'm not saying she's a villain, but I'm saying she could be the villain in someone's story if she says something mm-hmm. like what she says to me in front of them. 
Yeah. And she knows I don't agree with her. I'm just going to throw that out there. We're still close. We still talk. But going back to your point, I do agree with the sentiment. Brushing everyone in a group, even a villain group, with the same brush is not helpful. It doesn't add the depth. Um, so I would say, like, why are they doing it? Which actually adds more interest to the story. If you yes. go into, like, the whole social aspect of why these men think what they do, I think it would show that what Carol's up against. It's much more than just a club of mean men. And, um, and this is this is the thing. So one of the ones one of the ones is her husband, right? Hmm. So I'm like, yes, the husband has good reason to not be a fan of the fact that his wife is actually a lesbian, right? That makes all the sense to me. But show that, show that pain, right? Okay. And I feel that they only showed how the the bitter, the, the how bitter he became, right? And how mean he became because of that. And I'm like do something with that like but maybe not what he lost what he went through the pain of yes. losing his wife yeah so now it kind of felt like he was bitter without an explanation just because he's a mean old white dude so going back to affirmative myopia um the second point you mentioned the excluding of a certain group when portraying some other groups in a better way can we bring can we go back to that for a minute sure i'm, I'm guessing you want an example there too I always want examples. Give them to yes. me, please. Okay. So, um, so the second point was um, when you exclude, like, like I said, like when you build a stage for a certain group, and then you exclude the other, the people who should also be on that stage, right? Or you put uh, them down. You make them not as visible, or you don't give them credit, or you take credit yes. away. Yes, that. Okay. So my example. Do you know? I'm, I'm sure you know about the Stonewall riots. Yes, um, that was 1969, yes. wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, so for those who don't know what the Stonewall riots or uprising means, um, the events that happened there are said to have been the catalyst for the gay rights movement. So the the event, it was one event that became others, um, yeah. was demonstrations by members of the gay community. I would actually say more than the gay community. Um, uh, I'll just go ahead and say LGBTQ to not leave yeah. them out. Um, in response to police uh, raiding the Stonewall Inn in New York. Yes. So in 2015, the film Stonewall came out and it, it depicted these events, right? And the film received criticism even before officially hitting the theaters because the protagonist of this film is Danny Winters, who is a white cis hetero gay guy from a small town who flees to New York um, and then, you know, gets, becomes part of that community. And in the film, uh, Danny is the one throwing the legendary first brick of the Stonewall riots. I'm just uh, gonna put my hand up here. Cis hetero gay, that doesn't make sense to me in my head. Oh, oh, I no, I meant cis, just cis, sorry. Okay, I thought I misheard or something. I was just no, no. Sure. That's just I. I say cis hetero so often. I must have slipped there. No, so he was uh, um, cisgendered. Cisgender. Yeah, that's what. I, yeah, cisgender and gay. That's what I meant. Thank you. No worries. Um, but I thought that Marshall P. Johnson, um, if a rock was thrown, that they were credited with that. But it, it has been up for debate. <laughs> yeah, it, it has been. Uh, but yeah. Um, Marsha P. Johnson is definitely credited for throwing that first legendary break, um, but so is Sylvia Rivera. And like, if a brick was thrown, right? Like, there's there's people that who is said uh, up for brick, yeah, 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 yeah. So 
Apparently, Marsha P. Johnson has always denied throwing any brick. I've heard that. So in the film, in the film, just to be clear, a brick was yeah. thrown and yes. it was thrown by a white cis gay guy. Yes. Well, those credited for it, you know, if a brick was thrown, are anything but. Uh, Sylvia Rivera was a Latina American drag queen and Marsha P. Johnson, an American drag queen of color. And um, some call Johnson a transgender woman, but the last thing I've read, that's up for debate as well. And apparently Johnson never actually referred to themselves as transgender. Just wanted to make that clear. Um, okay. Yeah. So because of this and because who the filmmakers chose to portray as the lead character throwing the brick in the film and kind of lighting it off, the movie yeah. received criticism from what I've heard even before it came to theater. Yes. Like many LGBTQAI plus rights activists, right, including those who were actually at the riots, they spoke out against it. Uh, some people called it yet another attempt at whitewashing history by inadequately showing the diversity of the people who participated in the riots. Um, others pointed out that the lead wasn't just white, but he also acted too straight to represent the members of the Stonewall community, um, so even though he was gay. So very uh, uh, homonormative. So of course, there's also the fact that the actor who played Danny Winters isn't gay either. And that was all part of the criticism that the film received uh, before it came out. Okay, I see. So there are two things going on here. Having the brick thrown by a white cisgender man whitewashes the diversity of the community itself. Yeah. And with him being criticized for acting too straight, you could say it's ciswashed. That's not a term I use very often, but I'll use it here. It's ciswashed that particular moment in history. It did, because if a brick was thrown, it was thrown by uh, um, one person of, of two, color. First of all, that, and by uh, people who uh, wore drag. Ah, yes, that yeah. too. Yeah. So, so for me, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, for me, this is why uh, affirmative myopia applies here too, right? Because it made part of the community present, which was a very, very diverse community. Um, it represented in a great light a certain section of that community, but it did so at the expense of those who are not cisgender and or not white. So literally an attempt to alter history, or at least our memory of history. Yes. Um, so if you intend to be inclusive of certain minorities... What you need to make sure is that you're not doing it at the expense of others. Make sure you're not representing one minority in a better way by representing another more negatively. Um, even if that other group is the majority, I would say, but like I said, I'm sure there's people who won't agree with that. Um, but yeah, also try not to give space to one minority by excluding another altogether. Because that, that could be a waste of good intentions. <laughs> it definitely would, yeah. I mean... I would say that don't let this stop you from trying. No. I'm just going to repeat that. We should probably say that every single episode. Don't let this stop you from trying, but no, really think about what you're doing. And I guess that's all for today. I mean, we have gone pretty long. Yes, I think I think we're done. And this is why we have another checklist. Also so for two. This, yes, we have two, two checklists this episode. But because we want you to keep trying. And the reason why we're doing it is, is not to scare you, 
the, re the, the reason we're talking about these things is so that you know what to look out for when you're doing it, right? Yeah. It's so you can diagnose your own work and fix anything that needs fixing. Yeah. So find the checklist on our blog, on our website at representationmatters.art. Or if you signed up for our newsletter, um, it should be in your inbox already or shortly. Yes. Right. Uh, so I will talk to you next week and we will be talking uh, about tokenism then. Exciting. All right. So we'll have to dig into that one. I will talk to you next week as well. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. It's Mariella. Are you tired of getting in your own way and not having a sustainable writing practice? Then the 52 weeks of writing, author, journal and planner is for you. 52 weeks of writing makes you plan, track, reflect on, and improve your progress and goals an entire year long. It gets you to unravel the truth about why you aren't where you want to be, and it keeps you writing through weekly thought-provoking quotes and prompts. 52 weeks of writing brings together every lesson I have learned over the past few years as a writer and a writing coach. Wary as I am of comparisonitis and unhealthy competition, I designed this undated author journal and planner to help writers develop a practice that honors their own needs and desires. If you're ready to become the writer you were always meant to be, go to mswordsmith.nl slash journal and order your copy today. Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our writer and reader questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.